Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Aunts have a special kind of magic. They can give hugs like a mother, can keep secrets like a sister, and share love like a friend. Today's guest, author Sinya Haynes, is a writer, painter, actress, and youth development professional. But it's her role as an aunt that's given life to her current project as the author of Jayla's Jaunts. Jayla's Jaunts is an exciting adventure series about a fun-loving little girl and her whimsical auntie Yaya. Together, they travel and explore the culture and history of every place they go. Haynes is no stranger to travel. She's lived in Chicago and California. As an 18-year-old, she traveled to Jamaica and, for the first time, understood how limited her view had been of the African diaspora. This realization put her on the course for learning and sharing with others, especially youth. With the help of her fellow board members, she founded Diasporal Discoveries. The mission of his organization is to expose youth to the diversity of the African diaspora with a goal of connecting them to various cultures, both domestic and abroad. In 2015, she founded Palindrome Global Publishing and Events, a small press and event services company in Chicago. The hybrid company has a dual purpose of promoting literary works of substance that positively depict characters of color and to produce quality events with a touch of style. Jayla's Jaunts is published under PGP&E's imprint for young readers, Oak and the Acorn. Haynes admits that much of her personality can be found in Jayla's Auntie Yaya. This series plans to take them to each of the 50 states. Jayla's Jaunts, All About Alabama, and Jayla's Jaunts, Adventures in Alaska are currently available with books through Jayla's Jaunts in Colorado in the works. Haynes will be reading from them during a Black History Month tour starting in Chicago libraries. Senya, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? Oh. Sorry. Uh, I'm feeling very full today because I was in professional development earlier and I was getting all sorts of trainings because I work with youth. You mentioned diaspora discovery, so uh-huh. obviously you did your homework. <laughs> um, uh-huh. But uh, I was in professional development, so, you know, I was, I was among my people, youth practitioners uh-huh. and 
learning best practices and different kinds of things. So um, I, you know, I do enjoy, uh, I actually enjoy trainings and um, additional education. So uh, it was working for me. I enjoyed myself. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, is Chicago your home? Yeah, Chicago is my home. I have lived here for 20 years now, thereabouts. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah, because I see that you went to Columbia College in Chicago. Um, I, mm-hmm. I've known people who went there. I have, I've, often I'm in Chicago because I know people who live, work, go to school there. You know, one of the first things that I noticed about your name is it's just kind of cool that <laughs> – it's it's a palindrome, and yes. okay, how'd that come about? I mean, you know, I mean, I think it's like real because I was looking at it and I said, "Hangs, senior, this is oh, how so? How did that come about? You know, that you got so you and this is your birth name, right? Yeah, this is my this is my government name. Uh, you know, it's funny you should mention that, Michelle, because I had told myself I was going to reset the clock on that. And what I mean is that um, so now we're in a new year, 2020, and I told myself I'm going to start counting again how many people actually come come to that realization on their own because it's really not many. Um, when I was in my late 20s, it had been like seven people, starting with my, my fourth my, – uh, seventh grade chorus teacher that were like, hey, did you know your name was this? So it's really not many people. Somewhere after my 20s, I lost count. And so I was just thinking about that a few weeks ago. I was like, you know, I'm going to start the clock again. So you are number one to recognize that. Um, And, I mean, it came about, I mean, obviously I wasn't there because it is my government, my birth name, but my, uh, you know, mama said she did it. Daddy said he did it. But, you know, it's his last name, so... There you have it. I, I'll just have to uh-huh. leave it up to, you know, he's the one who came up with that. So, yeah. Yeah, because at first I said, well, maybe this is just like her professional name for writing. I'm going like, you know, but I said, but, you know, that's clever. You know, but she, she just sort of flipped it around. I do crossword puzzles. Every, I've done them like my mother did them, her mother did them. Mm. And so, you know, this thing about words and word connections. And so, you know, I kept looking at it, and I was looking at it, and it just, like, jumped out at me. When you were coming up in school, like, I know you said you had a teacher who noticed it, but have you, did you get teased about it, or did people, did you often get that? Where'd that come from? Oh, no, not at all. Like I said, most people didn't know. Uh, Certainly Uh not the children I hung around with. They, uh, I don't know, they just never noticed it, and I never talked about it because, um, I mean, I knew it all my life. I remember very distinctly being four years old and my mother telling me my name was unique and knowing that mm-hmm. I was never going to change my name. But, um, yeah, it never came up in school. No, I can't mm-hmm. think of any of my friends really knowing about it. And some teachers, I was, I'm, <clears throat> I'm actually surprised more teachers didn't see it, considering they see your name every day on the roll sheet, you know, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it was really just only one who brought it up to me. I mean, who knows what they knew and talked about independently, but yeah, yeah, it wasn't a thing, and I didn't talk about it because I was never one who wanted spotlight um, on me personally, mm-hmm. uh, so I would not bring it up, and um, you know, there are a few people like 
my aunts and a few people who bring that up when they introduce me, and I'm just like, ah, stop it. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, but I think that the other thing that's so nice is that your mother told you that it was special, you know. Yeah, yeah, you had this special name, and and that's something nice in that that you you weren't ever going to change it. You didn't cut it off and, and, you know, say, okay, well, just call me, you know, uh, some kind of nickname for it, that you've got this name that's unique and it's special, and you know even if no one else is, you know the specialness of it. It says yeah, something, something about your parents too. I mean, were you an only child or do you have to- No, I was actually the eldest of three. I was the second mama. So <laughs> not an only child at all. Um I was uh yeah, I, I was I was the second mama, so I had a sister and a brother underneath me. Um, and I was three years older than my sister, but 11 years older than my brother. So I've, and my sister, she was, uh, she, she's passed. She was severely, uh, disabled. Um, and Uh so she, she had the capacity of an infant her entire life. So I've been changing diapers and feeding since I was like seven years old. (laughs) So Uh definitely not an only child. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know what? And that is special to be a caregiver, particularly, you know, coming up with that, it, it gives you like a level of, of also empathy that you have for people who are differently abled and people who are caregivers. You know, how were you influenced? I know that you're, you've done, you're a writer. I know I was looking into it. You had that you were a writer, a painter, an actress. You studied film directing. And you're also a youth development professional. Who were your influencers? That's a really good question. I think that as far as the art, which, you know, I heavily lean toward, I think my, I would have to say that my my mom, who who was a writer, she was never published, but she had, volumes of work that she used to write before I was born that I used Mm. to find when I was young, under the age of 10, and I would find them with, like, letters to agencies and submission letters to magazines. So she had aspired to be published, and she, she wrote articles and short stories and things. And so at that age, I just always considered, oh, Mama's a writer. Uh, Mama uh-huh. loves to write, and she's a writer, and she was a she was an absolute lover of words, um, and <clears throat> she definitely gave me that gift. And so, I I think early on she was definitely an influence in that way. As far as uh, visual art, um, that's not something that I got necessarily from anyone in my household, and the way that I became an artist that did it actually professionally came about really by accident. Um, Though when I was a child, I was artistic. I would draw pictures and, you know, make things for Mother's Day and Father's Day. But when Mm -hmm. I really started painting and learning different techniques and honing my craft was actually after my mother passed and I was, I kind of inadvertently happened on art therapy, though I didn't know the term at that time. So um, that, you know, so really sorrow influenced my Mm -hmm. decision to use that as an outlet 
Um, so that's writing, that's painting, theater. Um, I don't know. I took my first drama class at 12, and I think, as they say, I was just bitten. Um, <laughs> I, I just loved it. I mean, it is so cliche, uh-huh. but it's true. I just loved it. I was in sixth grade. Um, my teacher was Mrs. Saxton, I remember, and she started out the class with Intro to Theater teaching us pantomime, and I just thought it was so cool. And um, I don't know, I liked being on stage and, and, and performing other people's words, um, performing scripts and dialogue that wasn't me, so I could kind of get the attention that I didn't want personally but uh-huh. get attention for something that <clears throat> people saw me as uh, doing as a craft or a talent, you know? So uh-huh. I think that's where theater came from. And I don't know. I just love the arts, Michelle. I just always have. Uh-huh. Did you ever yeah. look back at your mother's, some of your mother's writing, and want to give voice to that for her, you know, either, either in a, performance piece or, you know, including it in something that you did or did it, looking at it, did you think of where she had been in her life? I know because I have written things and I, I know my mother had, would write things, but like, like yours, probably not as prolific, but she would write poetry and sometimes I would look at it and it would inspire me to write something. And then at, later on in life, I had even read some of her poetry because I felt like the world needs to hear that what this woman thought. Did you, have you ever done any of that with any of her writing? Not with her writings per se. Um, she definitely has been a muse that has inspired me to write um, okay. about work about her, um, um, work for her. Um, okay. But the work that was hers that she wrote, I don't know. I just feel like I always kept it sacredly hers. And I felt that mm-hmm. I would be, I would be kind of like the next chapter. Like I would carry that torch for her, but not necessarily through her own work. That's mm-hmm. how I felt. And, and, you know, when you lose someone <clears throat> that, that you're close to in that capacity, like especially a parent, um, or I'll just say, I'll just speak personally. I, I, I just really was in quite a state when I lost my mother. It was very unexpected. Uh-huh. And I just, I, I grieved in the way that I just wanted to build monuments to her. Uh-huh. I wanted some legacy to live on. I wanted people to know who she was and how much she meant to me. So, I mean, you know, I went through all sorts of, I went through all sorts of, um, ideas about how I wanted to memorialize her from, I mean, I was young, I was 25, so I had the, you know, I'm going to get this huge tattoo, and I didn't get it. (laughs) Um, Uh I also, I had, when I have, when I have work that I know I want to do at some point in the future, but it's not, it's, I'm just like kind of letting myself meditate on it in the background, I call it simmering. So I have had uh, a biography called Snow and Her Afro simmering for years for years and at this point I don't know if I'll ever get it out because I'm a different person than I was those many years ago but um there's this picture that I have of her um and it's in the 70s and she's got this huge Angela Davis fro and it's snowing uh because my parents are from here um Uh and uh 
I just love that picture. It speaks so much. And, and so I wanted to name a book Snow in her Afro and just write about who she was and what she meant to me. And that's kind of like <clears throat> a, a family piece and like genealogical information, which I'm also very interested in for like generations after me. I still might do some some version of that, but um, that's something that, that has been simmering for years. And as far as, you know, her work or what she has inspired, it has been more of things that I could do as a testament to who she was as opposed to the actual work that she left behind, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it totally makes sense. You know, I, I can totally relate to that. I will tell you, I did get the tattoo. It doesn't say mom. I got a symbol. Mm. That, that make, but when I look at it, it makes me think of her. And I have pictures and things that sometimes, you know, I look at her and she's my muse. And so I certainly can understand that. You are also, I love that it, I was reading in, in some of your bio information, it says that you are a lifelong self-learner in black studies and how you supplement mm. what you didn't receive in school. I mean, you you have to love books. I, I know what I tell people, I think the best thing that ever happened to me was being introduced to books in the library because I always mm-hmm. thought I could teach myself or I could learn about anything. What was your gateway into this self-study, this learning on your own? Well, I I think it started from being born and raised in Orange County, California, and just Mm. the culture vacuum that I received uh, growing up. I, you know, I was often the black person or black girl in my classes and space. I often integrated spaces with my presence. Um, It you know, I didn't learn the only, I mean, I had my family, my uh-huh. mother, my brother, this is after my sister had passed, and my aunt. That's like the family of my teens because my parents had divorced by then. And that's, that's who I had that, um, you know, what gave me any semblance of like home. We were out there kind of by ourselves. Um, my family is from Chicago, <clears throat> but my father was in the military. So by the time I was born, just him and my mom had moved out there. So we were out there. I didn't grow up with cousins. I didn't grow up, you know, with Big Mama or any of that. And so mm-hmm. I, I really felt I was missing that. And when I came to Chicago in my late teens to visit, I, my eyes were just open to this world that I had been missing. So literally I remember in my teens, um, when my my entertainment switched from, like, first it was Toys R Us, you know, then it was, like, <laughs> Sam Goody and the warehouse, like, music stores, right? And then uh-huh. it switched to Borders. It started becoming the bookstore. And I remember being in Orange County and going to Borders and going to the African-American section, and they'd have, like, a shelf. <laughs> and I and Thank I'd go you. and I'd... Yeah, it was it was myself, and I'd go and I'd get all the books I could, and I'd read them, and then I'd want more, and so yeah, I you know that that started from searching for what I just didn't have in my in my daily life. So um, that's how that happened. 
and and and, right. and I haven't stopped. I mean, I have uh-huh. a library in my living room as opposed to a TV, um, and it's all sorts of good reads, girl. All sorts of good reads. So. <laughs> I'm, tell, I'm telling you, you know, you and I. I mean, between books, you know, I mean, I love books, and I have, I have many books, <laughs> and, and it is. It's always that gateway into it, and to seeing, you know, other places, other parts of the world. And I know like at a certain point in time, there was a period of time, you know, before, you know, we started to travel to where that would be like my window on the world. I want to go here. I want to go there. I want to see this. At 18, you went, you went to Jamaica. Uh, okay. 18, did you go by yourself? Did you go to his class or what? No, that was my father's graduation gift to me from high school. Oh, so nice. he took uh-huh. me in May. Yes. Oh, I was so uh-huh. fortunate. And that was the first time I I got a passport, and that was the first time I ever left the country. And it opened my eyes so much because though I had visited Chicago, um, uh-huh. and, you know, my family's from the south side, and so, you know, I had visited black spaces, black neighborhoods. Like, I was in a black country pretty much. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. I... I I never really thought about black people who wouldn't speak my language or from other countries. It just that's just not something that had ever really occurred to me from one to eighteen. Um and Jamaica just really gave me that understanding that wow, we're everywhere and what really uh-huh. <clears throat> cemented it was that when I didn't talk, people would come up to me speaking patois. And I was like, I, I, I'm American. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry, you look like my sister or you look like my auntie. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And I remember being in the marketplace. And, um, you know, I'm 18 at that time. So my dad, he's like, he, he, he uh, took me with, it was him and his wife. And uh, they had just newly gotten married. And then they took me. And so, you know, he's just like, kind of like, girl, go do your own thing, you know. So I'm in the marketplace and I see artists like whittling wood and making little giraffes and stuff. And I'm like, oh, can I do that? And so I'm painting with the artisans in the market and just kind of, sitting there not saying anything and folks think I belong and it's like wow this is amazing and so that that really just like that just it just blew my mind and I have not stopped seeking black culture in other spaces mm-hmm. from that day to this one everywhere I go everywhere I go yeah I, I have talked to you know people and I said where where would you where should we go and I said you know what at some point I said you should go I said you know I said, if you don't have, you know, Africa money, you should go at least go to the Caribbean to see black people. I mean, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that you fit in, you know, you know, and they're everywhere. And then also to recognize that trip. I mean, the only difference between them and us are like a couple of, of, of boat stops and how some of the people in the in certain countries in the Caribbean that when the slave ship stopped, they got off and escaped. And so they were able to retain part of that culture, you know, Absolutely. where, you know, and, and, you know, when you tell people like that, they go like, what? And I'm like, yes, you have to go look at it. You know, we have such a rich culture that here gets, you know, whitewashed. I mean, that's, that's the only best way to say it gets whitewashed to where sometimes we forget 
where we came from and that we are mm-hmm. artisans and craftspeople and we have all these skills. Absolutely. You know, because I know you work with youth. I had worked with a youth group, and we brought them to the Dusab Museum, and we got there late. And one of the the docents took us around, and he took these kids to this picture, and he said, what do you see? And, you know, I mean, these were like kids from Detroit. They were like, all slavery. And he said, no, look again. And he he said, you know, and he pointed out, you know, what people were doing and how we had built this country. And he said, you know, don't sell yourself short. And said that they had bought into that whole slavery picture and not looked at what was happening. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You- That's so funny that you took young people to Chicago because I've taken young people to Detroit. I love mm-hmm. <laughs> that is one of my favorite stops that's close by. Uh, mm-hmm. to teach them about black culture in another space. Mm-hmm. I mean, the mm-hmm. Charles H. Wright, I, I tell mm-hmm. everybody I meet, go see Still I Rise. That exhibit is hands down the best, most elaborate exhibit I've seen in a museum to date. And I am like a black museum connoisseur in several mm-hmm. states. Um, mm-hmm. That's amazing to me. And so I've taken young people there several times, and of course Motown and Detroit. That's just oof, it's rich. I know. With our history, I know. I, rich. So uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, and so sometimes, and, and that is important, you know, like a, because you know when we talk about, I mean, there are places where you can see where the underground railroad go. You can talk about the northern migration, and you know all of these things that have come through Detroit, and then as part of it's going, and you know, and even in Michigan and into Chicago and. That was part of it, how people came here, like, for jobs, and then how then they ended up settling down, and, and, and especially when you can find an elder who can tell you some Absolutely. of these stories about things that, you know, like sometimes we lose if we don't hold on to it. I think black spaces, black museums, black archives are just, like, so critically important to our community Absolutely. and have to be treasured. Absolutely. Absolutely. uh Well, we're going to take our first break, and we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. Back here on Collections by Michelle Bonnet. I'm talking with Senia Haynes. You know, um, a while back I had had a fellow, um, in fact, he had worked at the Schomburg Library. Mm, and mm. he, oh, I mean, and, um, he, he, and even after he left there, he still goes around and works with organizations and groups 
African American primarily on archiving our history. And Absolutely. You know, and he was talking about. He said how one of the things is like you know we have people who have who doesn't have the, this this bag full of pictures, but it also shows like often when we move from one place to another, that's we sent the pictures back home to show how we were doing. It gives you a really look into where we are and, and what we're doing. Uh, you went to Jamaica, but then you also got involved with the diaspora discoveries. I love that, reading about that, because, you know, just like how we were talking about taking young people to to museums everywhere, often you'll find, because I have met with youth groups to where young people don't see themselves beyond, you know, that immediate neighborhood, that they are part of uh, a diaspora, not only across the country, but across the world. How mm-hmm. did, uh, and I, I, like, I like a lot about diaspora discoveries, but why don't you tell us what, Diaspora Discoveries is, and what's its mission? What does it want to do? Uh, well, um, the mission of that, well, first of all, Diaspora Discoveries is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that I and one of my friends turned business partner founded um, in Chicago here um, in 2011. And uh, we were actually both working at a youth-serving organization at the time when we had the idea. And the mission of Diaspora Discoveries is to expose youth to the diversity of the African diaspora with the goal of connecting them to various cultures across the globe and expanding their horizons through cultural education and travel, both domestic and abroad. And the way this idea came up is that she and I were both – well enough traveled. We'd seen some different places in the world, and we'd encountered different black folks who spoke different languages, had different uh, oppression and freedom struggle stories, but had a lot in common with us. And we were working with young people on the south side of Chicago, um, many of whom hadn't left the city. And we Mm -hmm. just thought, wouldn't that be awesome if we could teach them how global they truly are? And if we could teach them about cultures in Brazil or Haiti and then go travel to see them and be among them and see their museums and learn the history firsthand, wouldn't that be awesome? So it really, the organization was formed with, you know, two young, younger, <laughs> younger women um, at that time, um, kind of really wanting to take these young people and show them the world. Um, then we got into the business of it and nonprofits and the fundraising, and we, we scaled down a little bit, realizing, like, oh, this is a very costly mission we have. So uh-huh. we did realize that there is value in showing them the African diaspora domestically because Detroit, don't do it like Chicago do it, right? And Chicago right, don't do right. it like uh-huh. New Orleans do it. So really um, – we started thinking about our, our, our programs are called discoveries, and we started creating domestic discoveries. So, like, for instance, the Detroit discovery, we will study the history, the art, the politics of black Detroit for 10 weeks in the classroom, and then we will take the journey to Detroit. Um, so while we haven't been able to get the, you know, Brazil or Haiti or 
all these other places yet. Uh, we have been able to take young people to Washington, D.C., to Detroit, and then all through Chicago because one of the things that was really, like, a major impetus to start this organization is, like, these are black kids from Chicago, and they don't know their Chicago history. Uh-huh. This is such a rich, historically black city, and they don't know what's been going on here. And so we, you know, we do a Chicago discovery. That's been the main one we've done, and we take them all over Chicago. You said you went to the Sabo Museum. That is a frequent stop of ours. We've got places on the south side, west side, north side. Um, and really we just want to expose them to black culture and all of its wealth and what it looks like in different places. And, uh, yeah, that's how, that's how Diaspora Discoveries came about. And one really validating moment I will never forget, it was in 2012 when uh, Don Cornelius passed away. He took his life. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was getting a lot of press, right? So he was suddenly in all sorts of mag- on all sorts of magazine covers, in newspaper, on social media, things like that. And I had a group of young people, I don't know, four or five, they marched in my office. <clears throat> These were teens, and they were like, Miss Sonia, how come nobody told us that Don Cornelius was from Chicago when he started Soul Train? I was like, what? First of <laughs> all, you didn't know that? They're like, no. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. I was like, second of all, you care? They're like, yes. So, you know, that, that let me know right there that, okay, I'm on the right track with this. They, we, we just got to tell them, you know. It's not mm-hmm. their fault there's an information deficit. So, um, you know, it's valuable information that I feel we have to share, and we do our best to get it out there. So that's how Diaspora Discoveries came about, two women who want to show black kids the black world. Um, and, yeah, in a, in a nutshell. You know, earlier today, you know, because I listened to other people's podcasts, I was listening to um, a Zami Nobla uh, podcast, and uh, they were interviewing these two women who I think now they live in England. They had lived in Korea. But one of the things that they had said, you know, that, what did they say, don't be travel shamed. (laughs) They said, you know, to think that, oh, well, if you can't go here, you can't, he said, and they talked about, Start looking around in your own neighborhood, your, your own city, your own neighborhood, your own Absolutely. state, neighboring states, mm-hmm. and how, you know, mm-hmm. that traveling and how, how you go and do and look and see things. You know, I mean, it is, it is so, I mean, even though like here in Detroit, like the same group, we had kids who lived on the east side who had never been on the west side, and, you know, we're just uh, a bridge away from Canada, and there were kids who had not been to Canada, I'm going like, it's Windsor. I mean, it's like right there. What do you mean? You know, you, you've never been to Windsor. And it was like, no. And I said, well, we're yeah. going to another country today. And that was mm-hmm. just like, uh, we can get sort of caught into it to where that's what you see, these, these X many blocks is that's your neighborhood. But there's so many rich things that happen like you said, Chicago, I mean, it has such a rich, amazing history. And you'll mm-hmm. read about things that makes you want to go and see what's happening. And like you said, there are people who who were in Chicago and left Chicago, like Lorraine Hansberry was from Chicago. And then mm-hmm. she went to New York. And many people think of, you know, being involved in the whole New York scene. But when she wrote, um, uh, There's a Raisin in the Sun, Chicago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
Mm-hmm. In Woodlawn, yep. Yeah, that was her home. I mean, there's so many, you know. So, I mean, that's just incredible. I like that you have, um, that, that you, you broke it down how you had major discoveries, many discoveries, and my favorite, Discovery Bites. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was good. And how you developed your own lingo as to who was, what was a discoverer, what was a discovery, and a journey. That, that so it was like really making people see this whole thing about discovering and seeing that you're bigger than. And yes, it's a lot of people pass through a city, might have started out in the city and you hear about them and know about them. Like you said, Don Cornelius, I think most people would say, hey, you know, California. But he started in Chicago. And when you see that, Absolutely. you know, your dreams, your dreams mm-hmm. have, have done that. So what was the age group that you worked with? Oh, we Well, we worked with as young as, I want to say fifth grade, like, 10-11, but we uh-huh. designed the program predominantly for teens, and, and at that point, that's really that's really the sweet spot because we knew we wanted to travel with them. I mean, that was, uh-huh. you know, that was in the DNA of Diaspora Discoveries, and so we are like, okay, we need young people who can be responsible enough that we can, you know, we can take them, they can be away from their mama <laughs> for uh-huh. Uh-huh. a stretch of time and knock at the pool. So you, you, we needed them to be a little older. Um, but teens majority is what we work is who we work with. Um, we just did a, the last discovery we did was last year, and we went to Detroit over Memorial Day weekend actually. So um, okay. yeah, teens that those are my babies. That that's that's my favorite group at this point. Teens. Mm-hmm. Now you're also a youth development professional. I mean, I can see that youth development comes through that, but you know, you have the arts. But how did you get into youth development? Uh, well, I segued into youth development through the arts. I mm-hmm. was a public ally, which is an it's a ten month internship that places young leaders at nonprofit organizations. And I'd already worked in nonprofits, but the the one that I worked at for my placement was a youth center. And so I started working there because I had an arts background and they had this wonderful new theater. And so I was doing some things like stage managing and sometimes lights and things like that. And then I ended up being the event coordinator there. But I was in an atmosphere where from the executive director to the custodian, if you're in this building, you are a youth worker because that's uh-huh. who we serve and you will encounter them. And so I just started taking trainings with my other colleagues who were in the classroom and I just started learning more and more and then I started running classes. And, and you know, I actually, when I first started, I totally forgot about this, it was so many years ago, I was not only uh, coordinating events and working in the theater, I was also teaching a drama class. I totally forgot mm-hmm. about that. So. Uh-huh. It start, It was a. Uh, it was a. Uh, it was an unexpected but happy kind of segue from the arts. Yeah. Well, do you? I mean, because it's clearly you know some of the things have overlapped. But you know, how do you think? Do you think using the arts is really a great way of reaching young people and getting them to tell their stories and 
you know, just come out of their shells and, and blossom? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, but not every young person is artistic, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. as an artist, I always advocate for the power of art to to heal, to bring together, to promote growth, all these things. Um, but really, you know, the first step into getting, you know, helping a young person thrive is the mentorship. It's the being a caring adult. You know, it's showing mm-hmm. the care. And then whatever mode of expression you offer to them, you know, they can thrive in it if, like, that love is there first, right? So I, I'm an artist, and I do um, tend toward the art. But when I work directly with young people, often I'm, I'm kind of going the cultural route because that is a passion of mine, right? I have mm-hmm. been an art teacher. I've taught, you know, like elementary school painting, and I've done drama classes but of my own volition, and when I choose, I'm doing cultural education. That's, that's my platform. Um, but definitely, like, when we are running our discoveries, the arts are a big part of black culture, so we're definitely delving in to whatever cultural expression has happened in the place that we're studying, right? So I will have, mm-hmm. like, I will have them attend a dance class that is, you know, native to the region or whatever, um, and so the arts do come in our cultural um, exploration. But um, to answer your question, yes, I think the arts are a wonderful way. I have worked with young people with storytelling, with spoken word, mm-hmm. with drama. And, I mean, yeah, it's a very powerful vehicle indeed. Yeah. When you see, you know, when you look at our in many school districts, particularly in urban areas, you see that there's less of an emphasis on the arts. How important is it to be able to offer programs to where people can come and like the diaspora discoveries and other things on the culture? How important is it to have these programs? And do you find, is there, do people get, are parents getting it there, you know, hey, it's not in school, here's this program, let me get my kids in there, you know, because often they want to depict, particularly in urban areas like, you know, well, the parents maybe aren't that engaged in it. But is that what you see? Well, first I think it's vitally important that the arts are available to enrich young people's lives. Um, I I can't even imagine an artless life. I really can't. Uh Um. But as far as what I see, I've been fortunate, so I'm in youth development. I'm not in education, and there is a difference. So I don't Mm -hmm. work in the school day. I don't work in schools. I work in places where young people are specifically coming during out-of-school time for that additional enrichment. So it's not the reading, writing, arithmetic. It is the, you know, tap dance, the poetry, Mm -hmm. the, you know, different things like that. So... Um, all the young people that I deal with are in a venue where enrichment is valued and they understand that this is what they've come to receive. Um, But I do, as a youth development professional, work alongside schools, and I do recognize that there is a deficit in some of the education that is happening in the schools. Many of the schools have arts education taken out. Many of the schools don't have music anymore or visual arts or what have you, and so we really are filling a void. Um, That's definitely something I see. I can't speak to suburban schools, 
because um, I, I, I don't work in those communities. Uh-huh. Um, but, I, you know, I'm on the south side of Chicago. I've worked on the west side of Chicago. I do work in areas um, where young people are not necessarily as privileged, but the venues that I'm working in are trying to kind of fill that void and give them what they're lacking in those other areas, what either their school's not providing or maybe their parents might not be able to afford to provide. You can't, you know, if the parents can't take them to the ballet classes or the piano classes or whatever, I've been in venues where those are options that are offered. So, And it's very important. It's very important. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, not just for their own growth um, and enrichment and becoming well-rounded, but the hours of like three to six, three to seven, I don't remember the statistics, but after school hours are some of the most dangerous hours for our young people in some of these neighborhoods. So, yeah, it's very important for them to be engaged. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as you were talking, you know, I was thinking of another Chicago girl who, had, who was involved in the arts outside of school. One of the parts that Michelle Obama talks about in her book are those piano lessons and then going and doing recitals and things and how her family – I believe it was her aunt who taught kids in their school, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know in her home uh, and how she did that too. And then going and dressing up to go and do the recitals and, and that ability to perform. And no, she didn't become a, a, a you know, a concert pianist, but there's something about performing, being mm-hmm. on the stage that helps you in so many areas of your life. Uh, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It definitely contributes to the bottom line. And even, and, and many um, academics feel the bottom line is graduating high school. Well, guess what? It contributes to that as well. Um, yeah. You got me, Michelle. I'm, I'm a little embarrassed because um, I haven't finished the book. I'm just in the middle of it. So <laughs> I'm, gonna oh, well, I, I, I'm late to the game, but I am going to finish it coming <laughs> this month, as I promise. Well, next month because it's almost February. But, yeah. Well, you know, you know, it was interesting. I had read um, this book about Lorraine Hansberry. I read Becoming, and then I also read Valerie Jarrett, which was three mm. Chicago girls who mm-hmm. lived in a similar area and come different generations. And it was like, it was like, you know, I need to go. Let me go check out this area in Chicago one more time. Mm-hmm. You know, because it was like the talent and the richness that comes from Chicago, the level of thinking, the things that we're doing similar experiences in some ways, but very different experiences also. So, I mean, that was just like, wow, you know, again, made me appreciate Chicago like I always do, you know. It's a dynamic city, I swear. It really is, you know. It it certainly is uh, just a a vibrancy about it. There's also a very international flavor there because, you know, there are people there, there are people there from the Caribbean I mean, I've met many people there who are from Africa. I mean, there are people there from all different parts of the country, too, uh, and, mm-hmm. and the world. You know, it's not, it's not New York, <laughs> but Chicago, <laughs> is a, is a, I mean, it has a whole lot going on, yeah? So, we absolutely have a whole lot going on, and, I, mm-hmm. you know, uh, any true Chicago big to differ is better than New York because, you know, we got the well, best of both worlds. I love New York. Don't get me Mm -hmm. wrong. As a West Coast child, I was dreaming of, like, the Harlem Renaissance. And, like, Mm -hmm. I I, I really romanticized New York. I had 
a chance to spend a lot of time there in my early 20s when I was touring with a theater company, and I was like, this city is awesome, but I don't know if I would want to live here. And Chicago has the best of both worlds. You've got, like, that big city appeal, Uh but then you have neighborhoods, you know, and it is livable, and I did buy my house in Chicago. It's home, you know. I don't know if I'd want that in New York. So you 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 can't tell us. True blood in Chicago in that New York's better. We're not buying it. <laughs> well, you know what? And I think that when you go back and forth, and I agree with you, I think that as far as, like, home-wise, there's something about Chicago. I mean, I have friends who who, who live, I mean, and also, you know, like, it's, it's like so, like, it's the Brooklyn people, there's the Bronx people, there's this, and, you know, it's like sometimes it mm-hmm. takes you forever to get it. But there's things that mm-hmm. it's different, but... There is something that I like better about Chicago, although I love New York. Now, as if you haven't been busy enough, okay, you also have <laughs> you also have the Palindrome Global Publishing and Events. Now, when do you have time to do this? <laughs> and how do Never, you but I got to make that? it. <laughs> <laughs> oh. TG Penny was a pal- – so it's in the name, right? You you figured out uh-huh. my name was a palindrome. So I, I finally outed myself, Michelle. I put it on my company's <laughs> name. Okay, so I'm uh-huh. out now. But um, uh-huh. I – Palindrome Global Publishing and Events was a uh, means to an end. It was a vehicle to get my work out. Um, uh-huh. When I was a younger writer in my 20s, I had written a novel and some other kind of things, and I was doing the traditional shop around for a literary agent and all that stuff. And I, I remember um, this is this is a digression, but my mom was a big Twilight Zone fan, and so she read a lot of books about Rod Serling. And uh-huh. somewhere in, in in the back of my memory, I remember her telling me how, oh yes, he he used to um, he wallpapered his his den with rejection letters and blah, 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 blah. And so um, obviously she was telling me this because she loved him and that she was a writer, so she was talking about that process. And so anyway, when I was in my 20s and I was looking for uh, a literary agent and I, I, I remember getting my first rejection and I was like, yes, I am that much closer to my yes. I got my first no. I was so excited. But then after like 30 of them came, I was like, okay, this is played. And I went and did something else. So I probably, you know, went and worked on a play or something like that. I kind of switched gears. But when I came back around to writing, um, seriously, and when I mean seriously, like with my Jayla's Jock series, I, I have a mission. I want these books in young people's hands. I just felt like I was older at this point. My My life was much fuller with just, grown folks things to do and I just felt like I didn't have time for all that and I did not need to wait for someone to validate my worth or my art you know plus we're in a totally different era where access to publishing is much more prevalent so I was like I'm not doing all that so um I I started my company to to get my stuff out um, and that that's how it exists and it became an events company as well because um, I w- had been doing events for a decade, and I was like, well, let me just throw that on there in case something pops up, which is good because while I initially started it to publish my work and to do events on the side, 
now I have been painting more again, and I have yeah. been doing seven paint events and art instruction. And so those are the events that are falling under the umbrella that I created, not even knowing it five years ago, you know. So uh-huh. that, that's how the company came about as a vehicle to get Jayla's jaunt out. And now also that's how people can book me if they want to have a paint party. <laughs> uh-huh. Now, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I, I was introduced to you by Eddie Pierce, and he does – he publishes some books. And I know different people who have, who have gone that way. And, you know, it used to be – and people go like, who's the lady who did? Hmm. And I can't think of – and it was a series from Hogwarts. I can't even – I can't even think. Anyhow, they said they – Harry Potter? Reject- yeah. Are you talking uh, about J.K. Rowling? Mm-hmm. Yeah, how, how many rejections she got and how she got to be like – like this age, and then suddenly she made it. And, you know, and you have different people who you see, and they go, like, through publishing companies. I mean, I have gone, you know, I have written and gone to people, and I can tell that it's sort of like, well, you know, if you were, you know, is it just, like, too ethnic? And it's to that for communities of color, particularly black authors, but black and brown authors, is it how hard do you find do you find that there's a need for companies like yours so that more people can get published? And are there still those barriers out there that keep many black and brown authors from getting published? That's a really good question, Michelle. Because I have taken myself off the grid with that, I can't even speak to the barriers, but I mean historically Absolutely, they that you know barriers based on discrimination and not valuing someone's uh, lens through which they see the world. Um, you know that that that's as old as you know that's as old uh-huh. as history here. So one thing I do know is that just in the last twenty years that we've been in this millennium, publishing has changed drastically. Paper has drastically decreased in its usage. We've got all these online platforms. More people are self-publishing. Some bigger houses have gone under. I mean, so it is, it's, I feel that that whole phenomenon of this, the kind of like the old school um, kind of media, um, you know, kind of fading a bit has given Uh more access to, um, independence and authors of color and marginalized people of whatever kind to get their story out because they have more access to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, um, I know that it is it's absolutely paramount that our stories are available for our children, um, our peers to read um, from our own mouths right, so that we're telling uh-huh. our own story and people aren't doing it for us. So, and, that, and that's something that I'm very passionate about, and that's why I do what I do. I want to make sure that representation is there because when I was growing up, there was no representation. Uh-huh. Um, not that I could find. I mean, I marvel at the fact that I can just go to my neighborhood Walgreens. I can find whatever hair care product I can find. Um, well, you know, everything's catered toward me, but I live in a black neighborhood. 
when I was growing up, I didn't see any books with black faces. I saw, you know, the three items of hair care products, and that was all the perms. That was nothing to, you know, support uh-huh. my natural hair. Um, the, 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 the clothes, the, 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 I mean, there was just nothing for me. I didn't see myself anywhere, and I, I was really trained to not look, right? That's a horrible way to have to train yourself. And so representation exactly. is very important, and I always want to make sure, especially through the work that I do, that children, little girls, little black boys, whomever, who, 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 was, who, are, who I was, they don't have to go through what I went through, basically. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm out here. <laughs> yeah, I think it's good. Well, we're going to take a second break, but then we're going to talk about that, this wonderful series of books that you're doing, Jayla John, Jayla's Johns. So we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. And we're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. You know, before we even got going, I was telling you about, you know, I'm a, a new grandmother. My granddaughter was born um, in September. And mm. I told you, I'm, I'm a reader. My son is a reader. My mother was a reader. I think that one of the things I tell people is like, my mother always had a book in her purse. We had a mm. book in and I, when we went to, because I said, you know, and, and when my son was coming up, he did. I said, often, you know, if my mother took us someplace, you didn't have to worry about us getting into it because we'd be sitting there. We were those kids who were sitting there reading them books, you know. <laughs> and, and that's how I, so, yep. you know, they started to read to Sophia when she was in the womb. She has a book mm. collection. Um, I think, like, uh, the first week that, that I went there, I, I mean, she has her little, her little feminist book series, and she's got all these <laughs> books. Uh, and, uh, but the thing that's so important about the books that I love about them is that they have people who look like her and like mm-hmm. they are intentional about looking at like um, her mom was saying like she was watching a lot of these TV shows and she went online to find uh, and it's a YouTube show uh, and it's about a little African girl, you know, cause just, she wants them to see that you wrote, you you have a wonderful character, and I love it that she's coming up. Her name is Jayla. Okay, mm-hmm. tell me about Jayla. Who was her? Uh, what inspired you to write this? Is it is it based on you? Is there a Jayla? <laughs> you know? um, so tell me about Jayla. So Jayla 
is a bubbly, bouncy little girl, and I don't know. She's in the realm of eight, nine. She's kind of, she's kind of like the Simpsons, like they never age, right? So she'll probably be the same age twenty years from now. But um, uh-huh. she is a little girl who has a special relationship with her auntie Yaya, and Yaya, yes, they're based. On, um, so Auntie Yaya is based on me. Um, all the little people in my uh-huh. life since my first godchild have called me Yaya. Um, okay. And um, though the character doesn't look like me, it's a black woman. She's got long locks, which I used to have, and her name's Auntie Yaya. So it's a you know a close enough fact somewhere. But uh-huh. um, the character of Jayla was actually based on my niece. Jordan, who I did not have a relationship with, this is my brother's child, um, in 2013, uh, and that seems so long ago, but I was looking through some old documents the other day, and it's like, wow, I was working on this that long ago. But around 2013 is when I came up with the concept, and it was really kind of just realizing that, you know, there's this, this, this young girl out there, um, and I don't necessarily have a relationship with her at this point, um, but I, you know, I am an auntie now, and when uh-huh. I was growing up, my auntie was so special. My aunt came and uh, moved with us um, to actually help take care of me and my sister when we were young. When I was seven, she came and moved in with us, and she didn't leave till I was 16, and she was just, I just thought she was just this magical creature. She was so awesome. She would play with me, and we would we would have these imaginary places we'd go and she she was my mentor and my confidant she was she was everything and um so I really treasured that relationship between aunt and niece and so it was just kind of a a combination of remembering and revering that special relationship between aunt and niece and kind of imagining what I would do if I had access to my niece and what would I want to tell her and show her in the world and so that's how Jayla's job came about, um, if you've learned anything about me, it's that I, you know, I am a lover of black culture and I uh-huh. I love youth. And so I kind of threw all those together, mixed them up in the pot. And Auntie Yaya is this character that comes into her niece's life and she takes her places throughout the world. Um, right now we're starting with the this country. So she's taking her throughout every state and everywhere she they go. She's teaching her about, about the black history, who has gone before her, what has happened. And um, Auntie Yaya is, is truly magical, like I thought my aunt was. But Auntie Yaya, uh-huh. she, she changes shape. She can go through, she can travel through time. So she's, you know, she's truly this, uh, this magical person, and um, she just takes her niece on all these adventures and teaches her a thing or two while she's doing it. So that, that's the inspiration for Jayla's jaunt. Somewhat, you know, fantasy and longing and memory and, yeah. Well, you know, what? one of the things that I like about that, that, that concept, I mean, and then even listening to you talk about it, because often there's, that, that in a little girl's life, often there's this woman. I mean, it's not always their mother. It can be the aunt. It can be like the godmother. It can be the lady. And, and I think that it sort of helps sometimes that, that you as, as a woman, we can play a role in a little girl's life and open up a world Absolutely. to her. 
And that's what I think, like, you know, I like the idea of, like, the Auntie Yaya. You know, I had an aunt who I thought was magical and mystical, and she was glamorous, you know. And I, I, I also <laughs> wish she would adopt me because when we went someplace, it was just, like, so fabulous, you know. But But there is someone who can be that for a little girl. And I think that that's mm-hmm. important, too. Like, there's that message, too. First of all, for the little girl to have that relationship, but maybe it can be that person who's reading this to this little girl who might say, hmm, you know, I could step up and, you know, maybe their mother, because we do have mothers who have to carry that burden and they're doing, working like two jobs. And Absolutely. you can be that person who can step up and, and open that world to them, you know. So it, it shows what we as women can do and the magic that women have, you know. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's, you know, the mom, the dad, the 2.5 kids and the dog, I mean, that's great, but that's not what all families look like. I mean, most mm-hmm. I mean, half of my childhood, it was two women, a little girl and a little boy, right? Um, my mm-hmm. mom was raised by her great-great-grandparents. You know, like, we, the family structure looks a lot of ways. And so um, it's, it's interesting because I actually did have one um, person who, bought the book, and they were just, you know, they were just curious. They're like, hmm, but why an aunt? Why not her mom? And I was just like, um, you know, I, I'm not sure what I said at the time, but what I was thinking in my head was, well, why not an aunt? I mean, uh-huh. is there a monopoly on having a, a special, meaningful relationship, right? And moms have their special and sacred place. Like, my mom was always there. She was my mother, and I loved her dearly, but... It wasn't the same relationship. There are things I told my auntie. I couldn't tell my mom, you know. We had exactly. a relationship. So, you know, mom was the, the breadwinner, the caregiver, the, you know, she, 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 she supported my whole life. Auntie was like the flavor, you know. She was, uh-huh. she was the one who gave, you know, we had fun and we were able to do different things. So, um you know, why Why not the mom? Why not the aunt? You know, why, you know as long as it's somebody, you know. And I think yeah. ultimately the moral of the story is that mentorship in whatever way it comes is important, uh-huh. you know. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, I mean, really, you know, like, you know, like, why not the mom? You know, like, what is it the mom is bringing home the bacon, she's frying up, up in the pan, she's doing everything. Can't she have a, a mentor or somebody who, you know, take, give mom a break, you know? Right, yeah, it, right. You know, I mean, so I think that, I think that it gives an opportunity for for women, even if you don't have a kid yet, to think, you know, wow, I can be an aunt. I was in a meeting once in this woman, and we were talking about something, and she said that she had just become an aunt. And suddenly she, like, mm-hmm. uh, she said when she went over there, how the little girl was looking to her for something. And she, I was yeah. like, you know, wow, I have something to bring in this equation. So I think that's, yeah. that's, you know, so I know you've done Alabama, Alaska. Did you immediately think of doing, I mean, that's 50 states. That's 50 books, you know. Um, had, you, had you thought about that? And, I mean, because I'm looking around in Alabama. I mean, you really hit on a lot of things in Alabama. Do you have to? How much resource research do you have to do on each state to do each book? And then fifty of them. I mean, that, that, <laughs> that, I mean, did, did you did you have yeah, a moment of like, what, what have I been off? You know, you know. Did, did you have a moment of pause and going like, wait a minute? You know, maybe I should do Midwest, yeah. Southwest, like that. Yeah. 
you know, when I when I have these inspirational bursts, I, I'm almost manic. Like, I just, you know, uh-huh. I it did not occur to me at the time, like, ooh, that's a lot. But um, <laughs> so basically I, I want, I mean, I feel like I always, I'm a big, I'm a big ideas person, and then, like, uh-huh. I figure out later, like, okay, what's it take to actually bring that to fruition? But I wanted Jayla and her auntie to travel the world. You know, I wanted to go to, like, just like the Asheville Discoveries, I wanted to take them around the world. But then I was like, well, wait a second. You want these to be culturally relevant. You want them to be educational. Well, let's start at home. There's no, there's, there's no harm in that, and there's a lot of value. I mean, I learned my 50 states in, like, fifth grade, the states and the capitals or whatever. So, you know, this is a a tool that can help with that. So I was like, you know what, let's do, um, let's do this country and let's just go state by state. Um, How that happens in the book is that in the first book, Jayla's introduced to her aunt and her aunt pulls out this magic globe and she's like, spin it. And wherever you're pointing, when it stops spinning, that's where we'll go. And Jayla's finger is pointing on the United States. So that's how it's like, oh, okay, well, we're already here. Great. Let's, what's the first one that starts with A? So it, it's written in the text. And at the uh-huh. time, it was like, yeah, I could do 50 books, and I would just have <laughs> to get on a pretty tight production schedule so that they're all out before I'm 90. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I wrote Alabama and Alaska, and those two were published um, first. And I had uh, I had already written like I've had I have six books done already. I'm I'm starting on Colorado, wow. I think. Um, I had like a two year um, lull in production because I I was just in the thick of being grown. That's the best way I can put it. You know how life throws uh-huh. you a lot of curveballs, so uh-huh. you know. But I'm getting back on track. Um, you mentioned Eddie. God bless his soul. Uh, we're working together, and we're um, looking to produce Arizona. Um, this year, uh, around the summer, actually, um, we're in pre-production for that. And then, um, really, the writing of them, it's not that difficult because when I get in my zone and I'm researching, I mean, I can look up and four hours have passed, and it's nothing for me because I thoroughly enjoy mm-hmm. it. It is, it is, I have few greater pleasures in life than, like, mining <laughs> the annals of history to find some hidden black cultural gem that was either buried or just got lost by the wayside and like digging that up. I love that. That's, that's my total jam. So that's not hard for me and that doesn't take a long time. And really you mentioned Alabama. I think that is, that was the first one. And that one was kind of chock full of what I like to call black history's greatest hits. You know, Uh I've got Rosa, I've got George Washington Carver, Tuskegee, you know, we're going through the whole state. Um, and I realized after I published the first one that mm, I don't think I'm going to have the next ones as dense with different stories. Um, so, for instance, Alaska, we're really just talking about one black cultural story. Then we touch on some of the nature, learn about an aurora borealis, and boom, we're out. Um, Arizona, likewise, uh, it's coming out this year. We've got the Navajo Nation. They were talking about the first black novelist, and then we're out. So I'm not filling them all with so many stories, and it, you know, mm-hmm. it's not that labor intensive. Um, so um, I hope I answered your question. Oh um, yeah, oh, but yeah. That, that's my process. That's my process. Mm-hmm. 
So are you, do you have someone illustrating them for you? Or I know that you, you do, you know, you're an artist. Are you, are you illustrating them yourself or do you have someone illustrating them for you? Yeah, uh, absolutely not. I am not doing it myself with this project. I was very, I was very clear. It's, mm-hmm. it's like the mama with the auntie, like, take these kids. It's like, no, 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 I wrote it. Take these illustrations. Somebody else mm-hmm. needs to do that. So, um, mm-hmm. no, I do have illustrators. Um, and the first one, uh, the illustrator was my brother, and that is uh, Jordan's father. So it's a total family affair, and he is the one and will always have the credit for uh, creating the characters, so how they look. You know, henceforth and forevermore, he created the prototype. So all my illustrators after that have followed um, with his work. So, yeah, no, not me. Not, not, not me. <laughs> yeah, you say, you know, you, you don't have that big S on your chest just for that. You know? yeah. No, not for that. No. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you. So what age group are these books geared towards? So they are... Metametric scored at 860, which is a fifth grade level. However, uh-huh. I have done readings with as young as kindergartners, uh-huh. and I have worked on some studio work and had some 13, 14 young teenagers reading them, and they've been enjoyable across the board. Um, reading levels for children vary wildly, right? So you can uh-huh. see seven in second grade, but, you know, reading something at a 10th grade level, or you could be in sixth grade and still reading picture books. So it really varies. It depends on the child. But I like to say that from six to 10, you're in a good spot. And I, it's my hope that as often as possible they can be read to children by the caring adults in their lives uh-huh, because uh-huh. the content really sparks conversation. And I, I, I hope that someone is there to kind of walk them through that journey and help them process. However, I do add a glossary at the back of each of my books because they are educational, and I do recognize that if you are a younger reader, there are definitely some reach words in there for you that you may not understand. Um, so I have a glossary in the back because I want want them to fully grasp the content. Um, but, yeah, I, I like to say, like, six to ten. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, and, and even you can even probably even see, like, the kids on the higher end reading it to a younger brother or sister. Oh, you know? absolutely. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really, that is just, like, incredible. So under your imprint, which is, what is it, the oak in the acorn, <laughs> Mm-hmm. The oak in the acorn, uh, and which is, I like that name, which is your imprint for young readers. Besides the Jayla books, are you going to do other books, or are you? Just, I'm are you going to say I'm going to say yes because I have because before I started my Jayla series, I had written a number of children's books. I just didn't publish. I just didn't go through the process of getting the illustrator and publishing. Um, I was inspired by some children who were in my life um, about a decade ago, a good friend's children, and um, my uh, them being my muse first, the Butep and Tata series, and that's just about curious children um, exploring the world and asking questions as they do. 
um, that aren't necessarily comfortable, but it's like, hey, they're brand new to this planet and they're uh-huh. learning, right? And the way uh-huh. and 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 they have a reasonable mother that's walking them through the process. So the first one in that series is Butep and Tata take a train, and it's really just two children on a train, and it's like, mommy, what's that? What's this? Mommy, that man didn't smell good. What happened? And then she's explaining uh-huh. what homelessness means, things like that. So. Um, I I feel like I do want to get that and some other ones out eventually, but right now I'm really focused on Jayla, and I want to kind of, while I've gotten my second win and I'm getting my momentum back up, I want to strike while the iron's hot to mix, uh-huh. like, every, metam- every metaphor there is. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, yeah. Now, I, I know you have some events coming up, and I think that especially the one in Alabama um, uh as we go into Black History Month, and we we know in the news, we've heard about how John Lewis is is ill. You know, um, the, there's isn't there a thing to name that? I heard something about renaming the Edmund Pettus Bridge after him. I mean, so there are things that are, are like that. So where in many ways I could see that would combine current black history with things in the past. But what do you have going on with these as we go into February? Uh, Well, working with uh, Eddie Pierce from Rainbow Room Publishing, as you mentioned, um, we are are going on a um, mini book tour. I say mini because so far I have three dates. So I'll Mm -hmm. be at the Oak Park Library, I will be at the Ubuntu Center, and I will be at St. Martin's. Um, two of those are on the west side and one on the south. Well, Oak Park is a west suburb of Chicago, so I'm kind of counting it as west side. And so okay. I'll be there um, reading both books, and hopefully some folks will come out. And Eddie's great. He's um, he, he is everything I'm not as far as, social media savvy and using that as a platform and he's got the followers and he's great at marketing. Um, I am like the, you know, lonely writer off in the corner doing my own thing, not thinking about Uh that. So we're really, we're really paired well in that sense. Um, So that's what I've got coming up and, you know, hopefully some folks will come out. I'll be reading. So hopefully they'll bring their children. Uh, Jayla Johnson is really, you know, I I I wrote it to be read out loud, understanding that can't uh-huh. always happen. But Auntie Yaya, she speaks in lyrical verse. And so it's really fun to, you know, if you get someone who's got, uh, you know, enough theatrical flair, you know, that they're reading to the child, you can really get sing-song with what she's saying. And so um, I always have fun doing readings especially with the little ones. So I'm looking forward to it. It should be good. And, you know, February is our month, girl. So uh-huh. yeah. Gotta, gotta uh, yeah. All, all 29 days this year. You know, all 29 days. Yeah, I it's a late year. I mean, and that's so cool, though, because you do have that background in the theater, acting. So, you know, I can see where you can, like, sort of really get into it and transform yourself as you sit there so that they see you know, Auntie Yaya, they're, you know, telling a story, and maybe they'll go and look, maybe they'll go home looking for their Auntie Yaya from that. How, <laughs> how do people get your books? Uh, they can go to my website, palindrome global, 
www.thebookstoreshop.com. And uh-huh. they, they can click on store, and the books are on sale there. And they uh-huh. ship pretty quickly. So, yeah, uh-huh. anyone who's interested, absolutely. Uh-huh. Now, I've got, I've, hey, I've got mine coming. I've got Alabama and Alaska coming. Okay, how do you have a uh, mechanism so as each new one comes out that they would be notified about it? Yeah, so if if uh, if folks have ordered from the website and uh-huh. purchases have been shipped, then their inform- their email addresses are retained. And so when the new ones come out, not only all the folks that have come to events that I've had and signed the sign-in sheet, all the folks who have purchased online, they'll definitely be notified when uh, the new books come out because, you know, we're trying to fill those libraries, those personal libraries in young readers' homes, so we definitely don't mm-hmm. want them to miss out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, of course. i got to make sure I stay on it. And as far as if someone wants to reach you as far as doing an event, and you know, now we had talked about Chicago, Chicago folks, and I understand you were talking about um, the different people you've done uh, events for, mayors, congressmen, celebrity artists, and you did one for one of my favorites, Michelle Obama. Okay, <laughs> I mean it's like you know it's like you know that's my dream. You know, yeah. I mean to to interview her, um, just to sit down and talk. You know, I was like, girl, yeah. Um, so she's pretty awesome. She's pretty awesome. Uh, you got oh, it. Yeah, I mean it's just like you know, just a, a phenomenal woman. I mean, with I think that so many more great things to come from that. How how are you balancing? Are you like sort of like putting the event planning like on the back burner as you promote the book? Or are you still doing both? So I have segued from coordinating those kind of large scale events because those were duties of um, a job that I had at the venue I was. The events that uh-huh. I do on my own now are more artistic events. So I do uh-huh. paint parties, um, paint paint classes and instruction. I do some at, like, senior citizen homes, personal parties, things like that. So that's kind of where I've segued um, with the events portion. But I do have that experience. So, you know, I've had some friends who are like, Senya, you know my wedding's coming up. I'm going to holler at you. It's like, okay, girl, well, let me know what month because I got stuff to do. So, I, you know, that's stuff that I may go back to on a case-by-case basis, but right now I'm doing the events portion of my company is basically focusing on the art events. And, um, uh-huh. yeah, I mean, between that and working with young people, trying to go so diaspora discoveries, I'm not just in the classroom. I'm like, I'm the executive director. I'm looking for money. I'm, I'm wearing a lot of hats. I'm looking for the money. I'm teaching uh-huh. the young people. I'm taking them out. So there's a lot of that. And then writing these books, um, thankfully Arizona, which is the next one to come out, is already written. I was just looking at um, some edits before I, I was on this line with you. But, um, I, you know, the process is intense outside of writing. That's almost the easy part. Now it's like working with the illustrator to get my vision from what's in my head and what words uh-huh. I have written on paper to translate into images and then going back and forth with that. And then there's the formatting and all sorts of stuff. So this process is um, about to be very time-consuming, <laughs> uh-huh. very time-consuming indeed. But it's, it's totally worth it. I love the end product, and there's nothing like um, – you know, seeing your 
your imaginings from your mind and holding it in your hand. There's nothing like it. And then even better, giving it to someone else, a young person to hold in their hand and to see their eyes get big when they open the book and look on the pages and there are these colorful images doing these funky, crazy things. It's like, whoa. So I'm very excited about that process. But it, it is about to be hump week month uh-huh. <laughs> month uh-huh. for me, which is cool. So yeah. I don't know one last uh diaspora discoveries, is that uh like is that how is that funded? I was gonna ask you was uh, it a five oh one C three or is it a non profit, you know? Yep, it's a non profit fund five oh one C three, so we get grant funding like, you know, as a non profit, it's a hustle. So that's, you know, applying for grants, that's private donations that is sponsorships from different um, uh, youth survey organizations where we are providing a service for the youth. So it's, the revenue streams come in a few different ways. But, yeah, it's, it's hustling. It's out there trying to get folks to buy into the idea of, giving, of, of this enrichment for young people being valuable and getting them to sign on. It's board dues. It's all of that. Mm-hmm. And, and if someone wants to support that, Endeavor. How do they do? They go through the same website as for the books, or is it a different website? Uh, no, those are two different companies, two different uh, websites. So Diaspora Discoveries is at diasporadiscoveries.org. That's D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A-L Discoveries.org, and our contact is, information is on there. Um, and so they would contact us directly uh, because I believe our donate button on there has some, it's janky right now and needs to be fixed. So mm-hmm. contact mm-hmm. us directly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to tell you, it has been a joy talking to you. Um, the next Aww. time I come to, to Chicago, I'm going to make time to oh, spend yes. with you. I mean, you know, yes, and we'll look talk. Me up. I will take you around town. Yes, indeed. Do you like Ethiopian? Oh, yes, yes, I definitely do. Mm-hmm. Girl, I got a spot. <laughs> All right. Hey, right there, they, they reserve us a table. We're there. <laughs> We're there. Um, Sonia, I want to thank you for your time tonight. I'm going to put up um, uh, where you're going to be reading. I know that Eddie is sending me some things to put up there, too, so that we can encourage people to get out there and read. And, you know, I think that so many people that I have talked to, not only for this show, but through life, they talk about the importance of that book, how often it was a book that opened their eyes, that expanded Mm -hmm. their world, and Mm -hmm. seeing someone doing that. And I think especially for our kids, it's so important. Absolutely. I want to thank my guests the founder of Palindrome Global Publishing and Events and author of Jayla's Johns, Sonia Haynes. Jayla's Johns is published under PGP&E's imprint for young readers, Oak and Acorn. The series follows the adventures of Jayla and her auntie Yaya as they travel the globe, learning about history and different cultures. In conjunction with Rainbow Room Publishing, Haynes will be reading from the books as part of Black History Month in Chicago. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, 
Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.